but he came anyway. Marcy, I had a feeling it did him actually help him a little bit. Sorry, he was hobbling and wobbling. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't doing well, but I, I had a feeling that he sort of relaxed into the class a little bit. But I know, I know they've been having problems, and um, I guess they've gotten really bad for him. So they're not going to be here tonight. Would, um, would any of you like to include anybody in our prayers tonight? Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us, your words to us in the Mass this morning and the gift of yourself, most especially in the Eucharist. Um, um, even more so now in this period of Lent. Um, it is a glad time for all of us. It's a time um, to be more aware, to be grateful for um, the sharing of our sins with each other in the mystical body, to know that we are a part of so many others who are offering their prayers for us and we for them. So many people we don't know who bear um, great problems, um, often um, in some ways more burdensome than our own. For this time, the special time of feeling our oneness with the mystical body, the, um, your body, Christ, wounded, agonized here on earth, um, that um, you call us into it to be more one with you, um, thank you. Um, strengthen us for all that you're asking. Help us to give ourselves completely to what you ask. Ask a special grace on us that all of us can take uh, more deeply to heart our sins, carry them with us through the day, not, not, be, not be dark about it or despairing, um, to find a help in them, to, stay, um, to make the effort that we need to, to answer them all day long, each of us. Um, I ask a special blessing, too, for John Meehan and Betty. Watch over him in these last days. Um, <laughs> um, his whole life has been a preparation for this time. He knows right now that he's preparing himself to go home. Um, let, he and Betty, let him and Betty feel deeply um, that he is returning home, not leaving here, going where um, he's always wanted to be his life. For Tracy Madison, yeah. for the two of them, Tracy, um, that she let go of her and continue in the work. For Madison, um, whatever struggle she will encounter, she must feel some ways let loose, maybe even a little bit lost. Um, if only more of us would willingly accept being lost as a part of our condition, how much better we would be. Um, help us to know that it's there that we are more likely to find you than when we're busy. Um, for um, Norma and Norm, um, for Bob and Marcy, um, and for all those that we hold dear in our heart, that. Um, we're not giving words to right now. 
um, strengthen all of us in our efforts to see ourselves through this last part of Lent, giving ourselves completely to what you ask. And we are grateful for this time together now um, and for all that these great, great poet prophets have um, been giving us. Uh, we offer all of this in your name, Christ our Lord. <coughs> the one comfort I can take in saying these prayers because I know sometimes they're long when we're at home if I say long prayers I know Suzanne is making faces of me because we're saying it over a dinner that's getting cold glad we can take the time here. A um, couple of things before we start. One is I just want to say, um, um, ex- express a gratitude to you all again too. I know it's shared because of the things that you've said, but you're here again tonight, um, even if some of you are raucous. Um, um, I've had mixed feelings about doing this class because of this other work that I'm doing, but I've been grateful all along, and um, there are times when the gratitude is sometimes a little bit overwhelming, and the last couple of weeks happened to be one of those instances. I think I've told you, I may have told you before we broke um, for this uh, Lenten break, that um, I've taught Moby Dick for ages and loved the book. and. Um, but always been a little bit troubled that I never quite saw to the whole of it the way I've... I really do feel that the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Divine Comedy, the Aeneid, those great works... Transparence, not the way, but I really feel like I see to the heart of them in a really important way. And I felt like I'd been there on Moby Dick, but there were some things I couldn't answer. And then this work that we did on the sacraments and then the, the questions that I put to you last week came as a result, I think, of this... I mean, if you knew me at all, you'd know how much I stew about these things when something's not fitting. I, there's these stories about St. Thomas struggling with the Manichees or the Pelagians or whatever he was answering, and, and I, I identify with that a lot. If I'm struggling with the work and something about it isn't coming to me, there's a hole there to grasp, and I feel like I'm on the edge of it but haven't quite got there. It, it just it stays with me. Two weeks ago, before we broke, um, I had that revelation that blew this work wide open and um, suddenly it makes sense of the things that I couldn't quite pull together the, the way that I know is possible for a work of art. And I realized that one of the reasons I couldn't is that personally I myself could never say about God that evil exists with him. That's something I just never could say. And I've, and I've known, I've seen Calva's influence. I've not been in the dark about it at all. It was always there. But I never saw the full extent of it until I could say that, that his thinking really rests on that premise. That even if he himself didn't go there, it's implied. And once I could say that to myself, it, it threw a light on everything else in the book. So. 
I'm, I'm grateful again to have this chance to do, do this work with you guys because it's meant a lot to me personally just to see these things. I don't, I'm not even sure that if I taught the work last year at, at um, UD that I would have seen this. Um, probably not. So it was a wonderful gift to me. Um, we, we were planning to finish this tonight and possibly start Go Down Moses. There's no way we're going to start Go Down Moses. <laughs> I, I think you're getting to know my faults as well as I do, and certainly Suzanne does, um, or you wouldn't be laughing the way you are. Um, there's, what I want to do tonight is, is do a good bit of reading, um, because I, I hope we can feel the depth of the tragedy that Ahab bears, because in some sense, as you know from my presentation on this work, I really believe that's a peculiarly American burden. I mean, I, I, it, obviously it's universal, but there are things about it that are so particularly American that in some sense it seems to me it speaks directly to us. And even if we're not Baptist or Calvinist, or, you know, I, I still believe we carry that in us. And I hope tonight that we can do some justice to the end of the book so that we can appreciate exactly what Melville's given us in this book. So. Um, next week we will we will start go down Moses. I'll spend next week giving a brief overview, trying to put things in context the way I do. Those of you who've been with me, you know it's going to be one of those waterboarding <laughs> nights, I guess. I mean, I, I never, I don't think of it, but obviously you guys do. So um, anyway, we'll start. I'd like to plan to do was and. Um, is it Fire in the Hearth? What's the second story? Yes. Is it Fire in the Hearth? That's the second story? Yeah. Um, the, yeah, and Pantaloons Black is the third. I, I don't think we'll get the Pantaloons in Black, but you should read it anyway. It's, if you started reading, you know that these are much shorter than and, uh, and Moby Dick, they're, they're self-contained, so you can feel like you're reading the story and get through it and have it done. Um, each, but each just, chapter's just one sentence. Huh? Each chapter's just one sentence. <laughs> what did you say? What did you say? Second one's two. Each chapter is just one sentence. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> you know that there are novels, and you must know that, that there are some novels that have a sentence that's hundred pages long. <laughs> I think we could it? actually challenge uh, St. Paul. <laughs> what, what, what he will so. challenge is, I don't know what to call these people who talk about ad nauseum, but <laughs> <laughs> going on and on and on. Faulkner's, Faulkner's going to dunk that at the outset. Um, if you can do Pantaloons in Black, do it because it's a short story and it, it would be good for you to read it early on. The, the most challenging story of the whole collection would be the bear, and we will. I want to spend a good amount of time in that because there's so much happening that will that will break that novel open. It's as if there's a lot hidden beneath the surface. Or take, think about it this way: you know how when we left New England shores and set out for she, sea, mm -hmm. that we had a critique of this Christian culture, but the metaphysical underpinnings of it don't become clear until we're at sea. It's going to be like that with 
go down Moses, when we get to the bear, suddenly this, these problems between black and white and plantation owners and sexes, the male and female, things that's been with us right from the beginning, all of those fundamental things, the sexual relationships, racial relationships, um, are going to come to this center where all these dark things are going to be revealed and that whole world will, for a moment, what's, what shatter is not quite the right word, but there will be this shattering. I don't know of another word. And, um, and from that point on, we will move to the end of the novel, but, but that work will be central. So we spend a lot of time on the bear. It, it will ask some hard work. There are, I think there are four or five sections to it. It's been so long since I've done this that it's not on my mind, but, um, but I want to get to that. The other stories are important, but they, they don't have the major significance that that one does. So next week I'd like to do Was and Fire in the Hearth. We will spend a little bit of time on Pantaloons in Black, not much, but then I'd like to look really closely at the bear because there is so much going on there. It's, an, it's really an extraordinary story. So. Um, I printed out maps for you all that you should get because it'll give you a lay of the land and it, I think it's important to have a visual sense of the action. And we've also printed off the um, genealogy chart. You all should have that. Thank you very much. Yeah, right, good. <laughs> I, and I, 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 what Fred is saying is I'm sure, speaking for you all, I know what's... It's really important to have that because there'll be times as you're going through the book that you'll want to check yourself because the, the, there are subtle variations on names and you won't recognize them and get a little bit lost. So keep that handy and just refer back to a period. But know this at the outset. It's like any good reading. If you allow yourself to get lost, you will. If you just keep reading, you'll find your way again. But if you wait until you think, I've got to have it straightened out, the likelihood is you're going to stay lost. Because a lot of things are not going to come clear until time. That's true with every novel. It was that way with the Iliad. Remember, when you get into the Iliad, you think, holy cow. And you, but if you stay with it, the story picks you up, and then you begin to put people in their place. It'll be that way here. So check the genealogy chart, but don't ever let it get in. Just keep reading, because the more you read, the more sense that story will make for you. And then I think it's, it's going to be a story as great as Moby Dick. <laughs> as great as Moby Dick. <laughs> You say so. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Is that it? I think that's. And we're back on track. I, um, I, I think we will allow about a month, four, five, six weeks, at most, somewhere around a month. We need to look at the calendar and let the people know next week because there's Holy Week and there's Easter Week. We don't have anything next week, right? Yeah, so next week we'll come back to it. Next week when we meet, we'll, we'll make whatever adjustments we have to make for Holy Week and, and stay with the novel. Okay? And I'm not going to do the poetry this week because there's just too much to do and I really want to try to get through what we took. So let's start. Just... Um, before we start, I want to ask these questions so that as we move through the, the review and some of the readings that I'm going to do, 
I'd like these to be in the back of your mind, not necessarily so that you can answer them, but so that they might orient you to the things that we will say, that you'll have reference points for making sense of these questions. Um, Fred's question last week, um, I mean, or a couple of weeks ago, I know was a really urgent one. Um, why Ishmael? And I think he's, I think he's answered it really well. But this this question of why Ishmael? Why did why did Faulkner choose? Have, I mean, sorry. Why did Melville choose as the narrator of this, what is really an American epic? I've been going back and forth between epic and not, but I, I really look at this as an American epic. It's one of the few epics written in the modern world, so it belongs with the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy. Um, why did he choose Ishmael? We went over the biblical um, story he was the outcast one. Um, remember that um, um, Abraham and Sarah, Sarai, threw Hagar out because she was so offended that Hagar had a son by her husband, and she didn't. And um, Hagar and, and Ishmael were at a point of um, death. They were going to die. And suddenly they become aware that this water is available to them. And we learn in the course of that story that Ishmael will be the head of an outcast nation, that um, he will be a wolf of a man, that he will have a troubled relationship with things. So the beginning was already there, but it, it's something we have to keep in mind as we read the story. Um, he calls himself Ishmael. He's Presbyterian, but it, it seems to me it's fair to say that his identity as a Presbyterian is shaken in the book early on. Um, remember when he's praying with um, Yoho, or he's worshiping Yoho with um, Kwikweg. And the book is, um, is such a powerful critique of New England Christianity, which is largely Presbyterian. So we have to ask, why Ishmael? What, what, why, did, why did he um, call his hero that name? And what does, he, what does he have to tell us coming back, which in some ways for me is the more important question. All the way through that book he's identified with Jonah. But Jonah was asked by God to go speak to the Ninevites and he didn't want to, he was swallowed by the whale. The parallels are too exact. And he's the only survivor in this wreck. So you, I'm so proud of you guys. I'm not kidding, I just, I'm just, I'm some of you anyway. <laughs> Don't get me going. <laughs> um, where was I? Holy cow. Proud of some of us. Sorry? Proud of some of us. <laughs> proud. Proud of us. You've read this book. How many students read this in America? And more importantly, God, this makes me angry. No, I'm not kidding. How many kids come out of reading Moby Dick having any clue of what this book is about? The, the depths of meaning is, and how much it's speaking to our country. So the question is, what does is, what is Ishmael come back to tell us? If this is a Jonah figure, and clear, I, clearly it is, there's, in Melville's mind there's a prophetic element to this. What is it that's really essential for us to know if we're the Ninevites? 
Because lacking Jonah, we're damned. Is it any more stark than that? That's the meaning of the Jonah story. The Ninevites are going to hell. If he's a Jonah figure, what is it that we're supposed to take away from this for our own health, our own salvation? Now, and now you've read it. I'm so glad. I really, really am that you read this in that context. Because you have to wrestle, we have to wrestle with that question. What, what is it we're to take away? Ahab, those of you who've gone through most of this, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Shakespearean plays, um, this, this is the first work after Shakespeare into the modern world. Ahab's an extraordinary figure. And as you know from the work that we've done on the tragic hero, the tragic hero is always a noble-souled individual. That's his nature. He faces something that other men don't face. And the fact that he faces these dark things, whatever, whatever form they happen to take, isolates him from other people. He has to suffer things that other people don't. Um, and one of the results of this suffering is some kind of recognition. Remember the tragic hero always has this turn, this peripatia. The, so the tragic action turns, whether it's Oedipus Rex, Othello, Hamlet, Macbeth, Lear, does, it does not matter. The one interesting quality to Ahab that sets him apart from other epic heroes is this, and it's a really, truly amazing. Every epic hero in the tradition of the epic, um, of the epic has had to do battle with some antagonist somebody who stands in opposition to some good he's after, whether it's Achilles or Odysseus, Dante, Aeneas, right? Aeneas has to face Turnus, Achilles has to face Hector, Odysseus has to face the suitors. All of those enemies are in the way of some good um, that has to be realized if the disorders that a people is in are going to be overcome. Is that clear? They're, they're all in the way. They're, every epic is about the disorders of a people. And the epic hero has to go up against somebody who's in the way of getting beyond those disorders. In some ways, they're most fully embodied in them. Achilles has to overcome Hector. Odysseus has to overcome the suitors. Aeneas has to overcome all the racial bigotry in Italy. In addition to leaving his past behind, he has to, remember, he has to leave his past. He has to enter a completely new life to found Rome. Dante um, has to enter the third heaven. He has to descend into the hell where he doesn't want to go. Um, if he's to see these things about the new commercial republic, um, and bring back something to us to help us understand something about ourselves. I mean, we, you know from our work together that I'm looking at the Divine Comedy as a, as a prophetic work of us. It's, it's the first commercial republic. It's, it's at the beginnings of the commercial republic. So he's looking immediately at all the things that we struggle with daily. Ahab is the only figure whose foe is not another human being. It's nature, number one. That's unheard of. And uh, more importantly, he's looking at nature metaphysically to see if he can't come to grips with or even defeat what he takes to be a, an evil inherent in nature. 
Now stop and think about that for one moment, because this is really crucial. He's noble. We know from the end chapters what a good heart he has. He take, I'm going to read these tonight. He, he takes Pip under his wing. He says to Starbucks, stand bored. He weeps into the ocean. And Melvin's description is, the ocean never knew the value of a tear like that before. To, 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 for a man like that to cry, infinitely increased the value of the entire ocean. That's how, that's how noble this soul is. He's fighting against evil. You know, he's not, he's not fighting against stupid men who are in the way of something. He's trying to defeat an, what in his mind is an evil. And yet, if you look at Ahab, he's such a confused person because he's a product of very evil he's, he's trying to defy, to overcome, to defeat. Um, so he, he, he carries with him all of these disorders. They produce the context of the struggle that he's in. He wants to overcome them. It's an evil he's attempting to answer, and yet he's a tragic hero. There are qualities to his nature that make him tragic. And you know that my reading of tragedy is not, tragic heroes don't mean they're damned. The greater likelihood is they're not. Tragic heroes are tra tragic in the sense that they have to undergo this great ordeal, but there's always a turn of recognition and a return. That was true for Oedipus Rex, it's true for Hamlet, it's true for Othello, you name them all. Um, but the question we have to ask here is, is, is Ahab damned? He has been raised in a culture in which he's been taught to believe that people are predestined to either be with God or damned. And we talked about that last week because to me it seems to be one of the most stunning things in the world. Imagine yourselves being raised in a culture in which you had to grow up tormented a large part of your life because you didn't know if you were among the damned or not. Take any day of a sin in your life any of you, take any day when you sin, what would your response be in reaction to that sin? I mean, the, 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 the imagining for me is sometimes overwhelming to think about what you'd be faced with. Our understanding of this God is that he's a merciful God. Even if we have sins, if we go to him and say, pardon, please, he will forgive us. The last words on the cross were to the man on the sin, I, we, you will be with me in paradise tonight. I was a sinner. They know not what they do. The only thing it seems to me that can keep somebody from Christ is defiance. Now Ahab is a defiant person, but is he defying God or is he defying these evil notions? So as a tragic hero, we're, we're looking at somebody unlike any tragic hero we've ever looked at before. So it makes this book, to me, um, so compelling and, and so important for us as a culture, particularly as Americans. So, so what do we... How do we read Ahab at the very end when this is all done? Um, is he damned or not? And remember what I said, tragic heroes typically are not damned. That's not what we're left with with any tragic heroes. But here we're dealing with a, a very different kind of metaphysical context. Um, so that's an important question we have to ask. Why is Ishmael saved? What has he got to teach us? I'm already what is he coming back. And finally, the question that we've, I've, I've tried to raise every work we've done together, is Christ present here? Um, um, 
all of the men on board the Pequod, or for the most part, are, are Christians. The savages, the noble savages, are not. Queequegs has showed an interest in Christianity, but he's not, he's not interested in being converted. The Pequod represents a Christian culture, diverse, pagans, religious, everybody's there. We know the mates are Christian in name. Starbuck is what we can call a representative of a very respectable Protestant New England Christianity. Um, and we saw the critique at, in the first 20 chapters or so before they left that, um, that, the, that the world we're looking at in, in Moby Dick is a Christian world. Um, is Christ present where? Um, does Ahab, in what happens to him, call Christ to mind? Um, so I think what I'm asking, even though he's not there explicitly in, any, in anything we can point to, every once in a while Ishmael makes allusions to something that's Christian. Is he there? And before we go any farther, just for a second, there are three mastheads. There are three pagans aloft. There are the three days chased. There are the hammerings, which to me are stunning. Um, all the language of the battle, all the language of the battle is in terms of demonic forces. The, the whale is very often in the way that Ishmael describes him, an image of some um, agent of malice. Like he's sinister, like there's something evil to him. So even if Christ, if, you know, Christ isn't mentioned explicitly, we're in an explicitly religious context. The good and evil are couldn't be more explicitly put, I mean, brought to mind as we watch this thing unfold. Ahab's going after this whale because he thinks this whale is an image of some evil that is responsible for his wound and the injustice of it. And we talked about that. It, nobody comes into this world, nobody comes into this world who isn't going to be wounded. Nobody. Ahab wants to get back at that wound. Is that an anti-Christian action? Is Christ involved in this? How do we look at that question? Okay, so, so last question that I'd like to call to mind here, and if we can spend some time on is that one because there's, he's nowhere visible in it. So those are the questions, just to keep in mind. You've all read it. I think you've all read it, or most of you have read it. Um, um, I really meant that when I said that. I'm really that you guys would... That's a lot of reading. Okay, those questions. Um, very, very quick. We talked about the plot. Um, just to remind you, the opening is a critique of a culture, a Christian culture. Going out to sea, it in some ways is metaphoric in this sense, that going out to sea is, is on the surface a chase for a whale, in pursuit of a whale. It's an image of an American industry at work. So in that sense, it represents American capitalism, industrial capitalism in the 19th century. It's an image of that. Um, but underneath that quest is a metaphysical understanding of things. As a matter of fact, it's religious in spirit, but it's to dominate nature. It's to kill nature and make it productive. It's a part of that Christian world. They're not separated. 
it, it, that, that's, a part, that's an aspect of Calvin's way of looking at the world, to dominate, to conquer nature, the physical aspects of our nature. Set that next to John Paul's theology of the body. Um, our understanding of the sexual acts is that it's an image of the marital act between Christ and his church. The, I think the implicit understanding of a Calvin towards sex is that it's very dark and something to be distrustful of because there's a distrust of the body and anything openly sexual and you know how prevalent that is in the American culture. Um, when we get out to sea, we have all of these chapters in which Ishmael is meditating on every aspect of nature and of the voyage. So, and it's impossible to read them without um, coming to, I think, experience his um, humility, the humor with which he looks at things, his enjoyment of them, his openness to being, and his seeing that there's this interconnectedness between all things, everything in life in nature, in the voyage itself, because he always brings them back to something domestic or cultural, something very familiar. And we also saw at the same time that Ahab's quest is very different. It's metaphysical as well, but it's to get at the root cause of these wounds, this suffering that, that everybody experiences in nature. As we move to the end of the book, we move away from Ishmael's meditations into Ahab's life, and it's there that we have all these touching scenes involving him, particularly Pip and Starbuck, before the chase, and then the chase itself in the end. Um, we talked about doubling, how important it is, and um, we looked at Pip, and I suggested that you all understand what that means now, from the way I described it, yeah? No? Really? Okay, let me just very, try to cover this really briefly. I don't want to take too much, I wasn't planning on taking much time at all really, but in literature, we, what we see happening, I really believe this emerges in a Protestant world again. Interesting. You see some doubling going on in Shakespeare. Some. But Shakespeare looks back to a Catholic world already. Shakespeare's on the verge of modernity looking forward. Um, you see doubling um, in a noticeable way in the works of Charles Dickens, he's a major 19th century writer. I think, my own reading of this, I've, I've not read it, I'm not read anybody who's done much with this, but my own reading of it is that because Christianity has descended into a moral code again, the sacred is gone in Dickens' world, Jane Austen's world, it's not there in the 19th century British writers. The sacred's gone, Christianity is, has declined into a moral code You've got writers who are dealing with some kind of moral sin or depravity. They're a major character, but they can't explore it without destroying that character. So in order to protect that character's respectability, we see faults in them, but never the kind of faults that will undo somebody. Those faults are shown in another character, a double. So if you look at Dickens' work, like Tale of Two Cities, you'll get Carlton, and I can't remember his double. But you'll find if you went through the works of Dickens, you'll find as he matures that, that that technique comes more and more into play. Dostoevsky does it a lot, and I think he does it because he, I think he was raised on Dickens. I mean, he learned a lot as a writer from Dickens. So if you've read Dostoevsky, you know he does the same thing. In, in Crime and Punishment, you've got 
Raskolnikov and a double. It's a way of being able to identify an evil in a character without doing away with the respectability of that character because that respectability has to be maintained above everything because that's all there is. Now that's crucial. That's not a Catholic world. That's a Protestant respectable world. What's the next line, the, the next step in the direction of that? It's Joseph Conrad and the moderns who say, if respectability is all there is and that's a convention, then there's no truth. What we do is hold on to the conventions because they're the only means we have of protecting ourselves against a meaningless world. I hope that was clear. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. The sacred's no longer present. Respectability is all there is. But if respectability is just a convention, it's an, it's an artificial thing to help protect us because the world is meaningless and there's nothing else, then do away with that. And what we've got then in Joseph Conrad is heart of darkness. You've got cannibalism. And what he's doing is showing that underneath this very respectable British world is a cannibalism that the respectable people don't want to look at. So doubling is just a literary technique. It's a way of, of um, it's, a, it's a kind of indirection. It's a way of be, becoming aware of something in a character that an artist can't fully show. Um, and you can imagine how important that is. You get hints of it in Shakespeare. I mean, we're already on the way. What, how, how, do, how do we look at the sins in a person that are crippling and ugly and still hold on to the goodness that's in that person? Writers have to deal with that. What I suggested a couple of weeks ago is that Pitt is that image, a, a doubling of some of the characters on the Pequod. I think most especially Ishmael and Ahab. He's an image of that. He's an innocent. He's looked down on, he's frowned upon, they scorn him because he's small, he's black, he's not heroic, he has no stature. Remember when he jumps ship, Stubb says to him, you jump ship again, you're not worth saving. What's your worth next to a whale? It sounds like Shylock in Merchant of Venice, you remember. How much, how much money can you get from him if you sell him at a market? So there's something dehumanizing in the way that they treat him, and also because he's black. So, and notice when he comes in, when he comes in he has that, remember when, he, when he's um, abandoned, when stuff goes after the whale, he has that vision, I thought we did this together. No, we did, we did, we did, we did talk to him. Okay, okay, good. Remember he has that vision at the bottom of the sea where he sees God on the treadle of the loom and this, what is really a, the vision of the mystic. He sees the ultimate causes, of, who on the Pequod has that kind of vision? All those men are practical oriented. They want to get money. What are they all after? At the bloom. God damn. Makes me. Oh, God. God. This bloom? And they're all going to hell. God. Pip has this vision. Who shares it? No, nobody can see it. Everybody looks down at it. I'm going to read it in a minute. But I, to, to, put, to bring this to an end quickly. He's an image of that inherent goodness in men that they can't get in touch with because they're so ready to scorn another person for what he did. We're back in the Iliad. You're, you're worth only your booty, the money that you bring in. He scorned, looked down on. Who, and if it's a Calvinistic culture, who has any image of an innate goodness and its relation to heavenly things? So, 
it, and notice when he comes in at the end of the book when, when we're past the Ishmael chapters and moving to the chases. So it's not an accident. It's it's a my one my one sort of complaint about the novel, if I have one at all, is I wish Melville had done something with him at the very end. You know, at the very end he has this image of Tostigo na nailing the hawk to the mast and saying he had to take something good down like the devils in their, like Satan in his revolt. I wished at that moment that he'd brought in Pip because it would have been perfect to bring, he didn't. We don't see Pip after Ahab comes on deck that time. But I think he's supposed to image that that in man that is helpless in a world in some ways, feminine it reminds me of um, wis wisdom as a feminine as a as a feminine image in the ancient world. It's always feminine. It's more powerless against male strength. The tendency of men to use force. He has no place in that world. Um, but he's an image of that which should not be overlooked or forgotten. That kind of goodness, and everybody does. So we talked about doubling. Um, we talked about the historical background. I don't want to go into it again, but it was a way of leading up to the Catholic or the Protestant problem here that the original Protestants who came here were in revolt against their own countries, but also in revolt against Catholicism because they saw it as essentially corrupt. Um, um, they were anti-Catholic and they were encouraged in their belief to see that way with the thinking of Luther and Calvin and some of the other reformers. But Calvin and Luther are the ones who had the greatest effect, and in America, more directly, Calvin. And if you know Calvin, you know that he said the sacraments were not necessary, which meant neither were the priests. So the whole sacerdotal, sacred aspect of the holiness of the church is gone. We're already on the way towards a moralizing, towards the church becoming a moral um, social body in the world. That's the, that's the picture of the church that Melvin gives us, even if he doesn't quite see it in that, in that way. Um, so that's where we were. Um, we, we looked, I, I've mentioned the GAMs, and um, I really wanted to get to them. I'm not going to do it. What I'd like to ask all of you to do is to take out that sheet sometime. Do it this week, please, because I, I, I really wanted to do this. Just look at the GANs and hold this thing in mind because it'll help get us to the end when we get here tonight. Every one of those GANs shows something about itself in the way that it deals with the mystery of Moby Dick. And it's important to see that what's at the heart of this book is, is just that. There is this mystery that has to do with nature. And the whale is important because it's a leviathan. It's the biggest creature in creation. It, in that sense, it, it embodies this great force. It's more like God. But at the, at, we, could, we could have made it a, a cat. I mean, we couldn't because cats are... But, you know, there's this indomitable, huge, powerful, quali these qualities to, to the whale. Um, and ships go out to kill them and they're killed in turn by them. So there are all these stories that Ishmael passes on to us in the book about ships that are destroyed by. And that gives greater relevance to what Ahab is doing because he, he wants to go after this whale in the spirit of vengeance. He wants to get back for, a, for the wound that he received from him. Um, so at the center of all these gams is this question, how do we look at Moby Dick? I don't think we can ask the question that I asked earlier. What does Ishmael 
bring back to us? What does he have to tell us? If he's a Jonah figure, what is it that God wants him to reveal to us? We cannot answer that without wrestling with this question. What is Moby Dick? What's at the center of all these scams? And you remember, every one of them sees it differently. If you, I wish, I'd li- I really would like you guys all to go over to, just to complete our work together, because I'm not going to do it tonight. You know, the bachelor is wealthy. They, they don't even care. They have no, they, they're indifferent to what goes on. The Rachel was wounded. She lost men. Um, the Enderby captain lost his arm. Um, some, some have never heard of him. And I don't know if I gave you this example, but one of the things you might think about is the Stations of the Cross. And I'm not kidding about this. This whole journey is a purgatorial journey. It's full of wounds. We cannot think about this journey in any other way except as a purgatorial journey. Everybody's suffering wounds. Ishmael's a purgatory. It's Dante in the purgatory. Remember, there's the Inferno, the Purgatory, and the um, Mid or Merchant of Venice is a purgatorial comedy. Wherever suffering goes on to reach the end, it's a purgatorial work. This work is purgatorial at its core. The tragic, the Ahab story is tragic, but that Ahab story is contained in Ishmael's story. We get it through Ishmael. This work is a purgatorial story. Um, think about the stations of the cross. When Christ is going from station to station, how do people see him? Some people spit on him. Some people are indifferent. They don't care. They don't understand who this man is. What's this big deal? Here's this guy carrying a cross. Some people believe he's God. They're weeping. Some people are full of scorn and contempt. Yeah? So if you look at the stations, you've got a whole world that in some ways defines itself by the way they look at him. How do, how do we look at Moby Dick? It's another way of saying, how do we look at Christ? Are we really dealing with mystery in our lives? Or, or like so many people in the book, do we, want to, do we want to control everything so we think we've got everything under our control and kill it, dominate it? So the gams are not small. Remember, every one of those gams, in a sense, is showing something about itself by the way that it looks at Moby Dick. So keep that in mind as we go forward. I wanted to deal with that, but we're not going to have time. So that's, that's where we were. We're at the end of the book now, at the plot and the Ahab chases. And um, um, there's this theme of hammering that I just want to mention to you, you know that in the, in the third chase, on the third day, that after the boats, the whale boats are stowed, the men go back, hammering has been continuing since the earlier chase days because the boats were already stowed and they were repairing the boats. So hammering is going on board. When the men go back on board, they're, they're hammering to repair things. They want to go back to the chase. Tashtigo is in the mast, hammering the flag on. Ishmael is describing the waves as hammering. There's nothing that's going on that doesn't have the effect of a hammering. Why? That's, that's, I think it's the most powerful motif in that last chase. It, it runs through that whole last chapter. Why? What's he doing with that? That's not an accident. When a writer's doing that, in, in different places, you know something's up. So what's going on with that? So just hold on to that, okay? Now, what I'd like to do is um, get to the readings because I'd, 
I'd like to come back to this question of how we look at Ahab and Ishmael. Um, before I look at the readings that, that bear directly on these questions, I want to do two readings tonight. I've not done this before, but um, we've talked a lot about poetry as a mode of knowledge. You know, you've been hearing me harp on it a lot. That, that we receive a special kind of knowledge from poetry that we don't. Most people don't think that because they think it's literature, it's frivolous. They think of science as giving us knowledge and poetry as entertainment or, or escape. Mm -hmm. That it gives us relief from our burdens. They don't, they, don't talk, they don't give it that dignity. I don't believe that for a second. You, I think you know that. It gives us a certain knowledge, and I don't want to go into those things tonight, it's not the time, but remember one of the things I've said, it always returns us to the world. It's like a grace. It helps us go back to the world to help see things about it and feel things about it um, that maybe we didn't see or feel before. So it helps us to go back with a fuller participation in the world from whatever we take from the works. It's a little bit like the Eucharist. We can take it back and be more fully involved in it because of the things we've learned to see and feel. So tonight I just wanted to read a couple of passages just to remind you of what a writer can do, a, a great writer um, like Melville, that, that somebody else can't. And to remind you also this, remember, poetry always takes us back to the world in its concrete form. The problem with most modes of knowledge, as you know, is most modes of knowledge come to us by abstracting from the world. They leave it behind so that we enter into a world of abstractions. I think that's one of the great dangers of the modern world, that we tend to live too much in our heads. As a matter of fact, what we do is take theories in our head and impose them on the world as if we can control the world. One of the graces that poetry offers is that it, it returns us to the world and mysteries. We enter back into that world. So tonight I just wanted to read some of these things to show you how extraordinary a writer Melville is, how beautifully he writes, how the pains that he takes to get us back into a scene so that it's really believable for us. Because imagine somebody writing an idea, imagine reading Cliff Notes on this. If you're in Cliff Notes, you're writing, you're reading about it, you're in ideas, it's a summary. To read it means we're in it, we're actually participating in it. This is on page 624. You can look at it or just here, it doesn't matter. This is in the first day chase when it begins, and I just want to read it just for the poetry so that you can see the attention to detail that Melville shows to make this real. 624. Like the noiseless nautilus shells, their light prows sped through the sea but only slowly they neared the foe, and as they neared him, the ocean grew still more smooth, seemed drawing a carpet over its waves, seemed a noon meadow, so serenely it spread. Now you can, this is a violent scene. I mean, they're going after Moby Dick. They're, they're gonna be throwing spears. This reminds me of the eighth book in the Iliad where there's this beautiful calm to nature. <coughs> Picture this, there's a whale. The Pequot's coming alongside of it. And it's all enclosed in this serene, nature that God made ordered, beautiful, powerful, but you know, giving no hint of anything violent. 
A carpet over its waves seemed a noon meadow so serenely it spread. At length the breathless hunter came up so nigh his seemingly unsuspecting prey that his entire dazzling hump was distinctly visible, sliding along the sea as if an isolated thing. Imagine this hump if we were in a boat. I mean, you'd see it there, alone, you know, with the sea all around it. He saw the vast, involved wrinkles of the slightly projecting head beyond. Before it, far out on the soft Turkish rug waters, went the glistening white shadow from his broad, milky forehead, a musical rippling playfully accompanying the shade. And behind the blue waters interchangeably flowed over into the moving valley of his steady wake. And on either hand, bright bubbles arose and danced by his side. But these were broken again by the light toes of hundreds of gray fowl softly feathering the sea, alternate with their fitful flight. And like to some flag staff rising from the painted hull of an argosy, the tall but shattered pole of a recent lance projected from the white whale's back. And at intervals, one of the cloud or soft-toed fowls hovering to and fro skimming like a canopy over the fish, silently perched and rocked on this pole the long tail feathers streaming like pennons. It's stunning. He's got this stab from humans in him, and birds are perched on it. You know, it gives them a perch. He, Moby Dick's indifferent. The birds are indifferent. It's, it's a perching place. But we have this sense that, that it reveals so much more than it is in the surface appearance of things. That's just one. Turn to the last day just quickly. I just, I just picked these out quickly to this is the morning of the third day and it, and it begins this way on page 639 the morning of the third day dawned fresh fair and fresh and once more the solitary night man at the foremast head was relieved by crowds of the daylight lookouts who dotted every mast and almost every spar you can see the Pequot going through with men on every spar and on the mastheads you know just looking for Moby Dick they all want that doubloon do you see him? cried Ahab, but the whale was not yet in sight. It is infallible wake, though, but follow that wake, that's all. Helm there, steady as thou goest, and been going. What a lovely day again. Now this is not Ishmael, this is Ahab. What a lovely day again, were it a new-made world, and made for summer house to the angels, and this morning the first of its throwing open to them. A fair day could not dawn upon that world. Let me read that again. This is Ahab. What a lovely day again. You can imagine the beauty of a day. And we all know those days. I mean, you walk out on a day like this and it's almost like we're on the outskirts of heaven. But just the calmer, quieter, the beauty of them. This is Ahab, not... What a lovely day again. Were it a new-made world and made for a summer house to the angels. And this morning, the first of its throwing open to them a fair day could not dawn upon that world. Here's food for thought, had Ahab time to think, but Ahab never thinks, he only feels, feels, feels. That's tingling enough for mortal man to think audacity. Um, this is that, um, going over to 649, I don't want to go over this, but they, they see Moby Dick again, and Ahab comes down from the mast because remember he had himself lifted up so he could, he could be on the lookout too. And a few lines down, 641. The sails shake, stand over the helmsman at the top mall. So, so, he travels fast and I must down. 
but let me have one more good look round aloft here at the sea. There's time for that. An old, old sight, and yet somehow so young, I am not changed a wink since I first saw it. A boy from the sand hills of Nantucket. The same, the same, the same to Noah as to me. There's a soft shower to leeward, such a lovely leewardings. They must lead somewhere to somewhere else than common land, more palmy than the palms. Leeward, the white whale goes that way. Look to windward then, the better of the bitterest quarter. But goodbye, goodbye, old masthead. What's this, green? Aye, tiny mosses in these warped cracks. No such green weather stains on Ahab's head. There's the difference now between man's old age and matter. Um, he will go on like this. He likens himself into one of these path passages to Adam you know, a number of times. But it's, this, it's a curious passage because you know that he said to Starbuck in, in response to his warnings that he's safe from the prophecies of um, Fadala. He, he knows he's beyond dying. And yet here in these lines he's saying farewell as if there's some intuition that this could be it. So whatever we think of Ahab, we've got to hold on to these things, that this is the, he, he thinks he's going to be victorious. And yet there are all these little things that he's coming to a sense that his age is kept catching up, he's old, he may not see this again, he's aging. Um, okay, let me, I want to I pick up some reasons. That was just a, to try to appreciate the poetry of Melville's writing, because in some ways it's, it's so extraordinary. Um, Faulkner went to work on him. Um, he loved this book. I don't think Faulkner could have done the work that he did without Melville. I think Faulkner knows that. Um, turn to chapter, let's see. Um, I want to do this really quickly. Turn to page 208, chapter 36. I'm going to fly through these, you guys. So bear with me. I'd like to do two things tonight to get to these questions that I've asked. What I want to do is put together some of Ahab's um, most salient, um, most pointed questions or utterances, and some of the things that Pip said towards the end, because I want to put them together and, and come back to these questions. How do we look at these things? Um, how do we look at Ahab? On page 2-8, remember this is in the quarter deck when Ahab um, gathers everybody together and gets them to commit themselves to his quest. Starbucks responding and saying, what are you doing? How much money is this going to bring in back home? And, and then says, vengeance on a dumb brute at the top of 2-8, what are you doing to be enraged with a dumb thing? Captain Ahab seems blasphemous. There it is, at the very beginning. Hark ye again, the little lower layer. All visible objects, man, are but a pasteboard masks. But in each event, in the living act, the undoubted deed, there some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth the moldings of its features from behind the unreasoning mask. Because remember, all nature seems dumb, unreasoning. By the way, I, I hope you remember that, that um, passage I gave you from St. Thomas where St. Thomas makes clear that God is present in everything in nature. I'll print it off again and give it to you because we've lost sight of that in the modern world and I, I don't want to lose sight of St. Thomas's insight because it's remarkable. 
But everybody tends to take a look at the modern world as if it's irrational. It's pointless, meaningless. Here it's unreasoning, this unreasoning mask. If man will strike, strike through the mask, how can the principal, how can the prisoner reach outside except by thrusting through the wall? To me, the white whale is that wall shoved near to me. Sometimes I think there's not behind, but tis enough. He tasks me, he heaps me, I see in him outrageous strength with an inscrutable malice sinewing it. That inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate and be the white whale agent or the white whale principal, I will wreck that hate upon him. Talk not to me of blasphemy, man. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. For could the sun do that, then I could do the other. Since there is ever a sort of fair play herein, jealousy presiding over all creations, but not my master man is even that fair play, whose over me truth has no, truth has no confines. He wants truth. He feels himself a prisoner. We've talked about this. He wants to strike through to get at what he thinks is an evil behind everything. Go to page six, two, thirteen. I think this is a crucial chapter. If if you read my essay on page, you'll see on six, page six seventy seven, my reading of this that the sun goes down and I take it that symbolically for Melville the sun going down ratifies Ahab's descent into darkness. That's why it happens here. Immediately after he engages the quest we have this scene with him. The sun goes down 213 and he's thinking about the men and their responses to what he's just done. They think me mad, Starbuck does, but I'm demoniac. I'm madness maddened. That wild madness that's only calm to comprehend itself. The prophecy was that I should be dismembered and I, I lost this leg. I now prophesy that I will dismember my dismemberer. Now then be the prophet and the fulfiller one. In some ways we have to say he's taking the place of Christ. He, he has been dismembered, he's going to dismember, he's going to answer, he will rectify it in his own mind. Now then, be ye the prophet and the filler one, that's more than ye, ye great gods ever were, I laugh and hoot at ye, he goes on. Um, swerve me, you cannot swerve me, else ye swerve yourselves. Man has ye there, swerve me, the path to my fixed purpose is laid with iron rails, whereon my soul is grooved to run. Over unsounded gorges, through the rifled hearts of mountains, under torrents beds, unerringly I rush. Knots an obstacle, knots an angle to the iron way. Remember the notion of predestination for Calvin. Your, your life is determined. The language here is no accident. I mean, I, we have, I, don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to put a cap on this chapter right now, but just remember, however we read this chapter, that that language is a part of what they grew up with. People are predestined to do something. There's no free will. You're set to do something. You will do it. And think about the Protestant will. It was absolutely determined in what it was doing. That's why we were so industrious in our beginnings. I mean, you couldn't stop them. Um, in uh, chapter 100, he has the meeting. I don't want you to go there. Um, the, the meeting with the captain, Enderby, who loses his arm, remember. And... Um, Chapter 106, page 536. 
This is just after he meets with the Enderby captain and he has to have a new leg made, remember? And it raises this question of grief and sorrow for him. The bottom of page 106. Um, Yea, more than equally thought Ahab, since both the ancestry, ancestry and posterity of grief go further than the ancestry and posterity of joy. For not to hint of this, that is an inference from certain canonic teachings that while some natural enjoyments here shall have no children born to them for the other world, but on the contrary shall be followed by the joy childlessness of all hell's despair. Now, if some people are destined to be damned, <coughs> they can have happy moments here, right? But the offspring of those happy moments will be grief. So the argument here is that Grief has a deeper metaphysical root than joy. I mean, that's the drift of this thinking here. And he will flesh this out. Where some guilty mortal misery shall still <coughs> fertilely beget to themselves an eternally progressive progeny of griefs beyond the grave. Not at all, not at all to hint of this, there still seems an inequality in the deeper analysis of the thing. For thought Ahab... While even the highest earthly felicities ever have a certain unsignifying pettiness lurking in them, but at bottom all heart woes, a misty significance, and in some men an archangelic grandeur, so do their diligent tracings out not belie the obvious deduction. To trail the genealogy of these, of these high mortal miseries carries us at last among the sourceless primogenitors of the gods, so that in the face of all the glad haymaking suns and soft cymbaling round harvest moons, we must needs give in to this, that the gods themselves are not forever glad. I'm going to put this slightly different if you can bear with me. I don't like doing this because I, I try to stay. It seems to me what he's describing is the effects of the fall. Now, stop and think about this in your life. All of us know this experience. We have these moments of joy. 24 hours later, we're in the dumps. We just think our life is going to be happy and suddenly something slaps us in the face, we're ready to get angry and shoot somebody. So that no matter what happens in our life, we have this sense that no matter how happy we are, those moments are fleeting, grief seems to be greater than joy. Now my explanation for that for a moment, just for a moment, is those are the effects of the fall. But if you're thinking about them and you're trying to take them to their metaphysical roots, it raises this question, is, are the gods even themselves unhappy? Because we can't ever seem to escape unhappiness. We can have all these haymaking moments as much as we want, but sometime the next day or two days, you know, our life is going to fall apart. We're going to, we'll get news that will strike us to our hearts. Something will happen to us. This grief hangs over it. So for any thoughtful man, it seems that the ultimate origins of things is grief. Wrong, something, okay? So there's this sense that the ultimate source, the root of whatever happens here, no matter how happy you are, seems to be sorrow or bad. Um, page 570. This is that episode when um, um, they just met the the bachelor with all of the you know the the, the jubilant crew who can't be. I mean, 
Sometimes you, you, you meet these people where they're so happy as if there's no sorrow in the world and what you'd like to do is knock their heads off or something. <laughs> and you want to say, get real, there's misery around the world. The bachelors like that. I mean, they're full of, ha they don't, they have no, not a care in the world. They've killed all these whales and, and the Pequot will kill them and they're left out there dying. And then Ahab has this moment on, on page 570. There are these whales out there, Ahab even killed one of them, and as they die, they turn to the sun. We've talked about the sunflower, remember, earlier, and I think we were talking about poetry and the, the logos in nature. Soothed again, but only soothed, deeper gloom. Ahab, who had sterned off from the whale, sat intently watching his final wanings from the now tranquil boat. For that strange spectacle observable in all sperm whales dying, the turning of the head, and so expiring, that strange spectacle beheld of such a placid evening somehow to Ahab conveyed a wondrous unknown before, a wondrousness. He turns and turns him to it, how slowly, but how steadfast, how steadfastly, his homage rendering and invoking brow with his last dying motions, he too worships fire. Remember, he's going to identify himself before, but I want you to just remember, the whale turns to the sun in his last act. Do you remember what Ahab does when he dies? Well, he doesn't have time to do anything. Huh? He doesn't have time to do anything, right? <laughs> he turned away from the sun. You got you guys got you gotta go back and he turned he, he turned away from the sun. It's it's that's our description of um, um page five eighty one. Remember, this is where the, the lightning storm takes over the ship and they have to confront this natural disaster. And um, when lightning hits the ships, it sends off this glow, this sort of eerie, supernatural, kind of ghostly glow to the ship. And the men become momentarily superstitious. Well, I mean, they're, they're always superstitious, but it, it enlivens the moment. Page 581. Oh, that clear spirit of clean, clear fire, whom on these seas I as Persian once did worship, Persian wants to till in the sacramental act so burned by thee, that to this hour I bear the scar. I now know thee, thou clear spirit, and I know now, I now know that thy right worship is defiance. To neither love nor reverence will thou be kind, and even for hate thou canst but kill, and all are killed. No fearless fool now fronts thee. Who can withstand lightning? I mean, when lightning comes, you want to run for cover. Who's going to face it out? Um, no fearless fool now fronts thee. I own thy speechless, placeless power, but to the last gasp of my earthquake, life will dispute its unconditional, unintegral mastery in me. In the midst of the personified, personified, impersonal, a personality stands here. Though but appointed best, whensoever I came, wheresoever I go, Yet while I earthly live, the queenly personality lives in me and feels her royal rights. Now remember, I've said this before, two things are we have to keep in mind. One is, remember, one of the reasons for this collision at this point of history is a scientific view is coming into conflict with a biblical. Two very different, radical different ways of reading the world. In the scientific view, we are a product of all these forces. We have no free will. We're nothing but a product. It's materialistic. That's the fundamental premise of modern sciences. We have no free will. 
We are a product of these forces. So Ahab's fighting battles on two fronts. Here he's saying, I'm not going to give in to these impersonal forces. There is a person here. And my, I will go to the end. The, the only answer to these forces is defiance. He's trying to hold on to something human in the midst of so many things that are trying to reduce him to something inhuman. I want to just quickly do Pip for a second. Um, there, uh, there are four passages. I'm going to look at the last two. In 93, um, Pip has the castaway experience, so you, you can go back to that yourselves. It's, it's chapter 93. In 110, um, it's the Queequeg coffin scene where he comes over and he holds Queequeg's hand, remember, and, and talks about Pip, and he talks about him in the in the third person as this figure who's other than him because this dissociation has occurred, that he's dissociated himself now and he speaks about him because he's so ashamed, he was so transformed, so maddened by the experience that he's not the same person he was. In, in psychological terms, they probably call him mad and put him in a hospital award. Go to page 596. Remember Ahab lost the quadrant, he, made, he, he lost the compass, but he made another one, and he asks the logs and lines be lowered to get a reading on the speed ship, um, and, they, and the lines break. On page um, 596, the Maxman is asked to help reel it up with the Tahitian sailor, and the Maxman asks for Pip because he's nearby, and he says, Come over and help at the bottom of 596. Pip? Whom call you Pip? Pip jumped from the whaleboat. Pip's missing. Let's see now if you haven't fished him up here, fisherman. It drags hard. I guess he's holding on. Jerk him, Tahiti. Jerk him off. We haul in no cowards here. He's stub. Stub abandoned him. He says, there's Pip's arm. Leave him because we don't have anything to do with cowards here. Oh, there's his arm just breaking water. A hatchet, a hatchet, God, cut it off. We haul in no cowards here. Captain Ahab, sir, here's Pip trying to get on board. The Manxman says he's man, and Ahab, he's the only one. The greater idiot ever scolds the lesser, muttered Ahab, advancing. Hands off from hit that holiness. Where sayest thou Pip was, boy? If any of you remember um, King Lear, um, Edgar takes Gloucester, his father who's going mad and pretends to be somebody else to help him through his insanity. He, he will take him through a drama to help him recover his, san his sanity. He says, um, hands off from that holiness. What sayest thou, Pip? Was, wh where sayest thou, Pip, was, boy? He's, hmm? He's treating him as a different person. He's accepting his own fiction to, instead of having scorn for him and working with him, a stern, stern. Um, and the other men scorn him. Who's seen Pip the coward? He identifies him. Pip, Pip, 100 pounds of clay reward for Pip. Five feet high, looks cowardly, quickest known by that ding dong ding. Who's seen Pip the coward? Ahab, there can be no hearts above the snow line. O ye frozen heavens, look down here. 
ye did beget this luckless child and have abandoned him, ye creative libertines. Here, boy, Ahab's cabin shall be Pip's home henceforth, while Ahab lives. Thou touchest my innermost center, boy. Thou art tied to me by cords woven of my heartstrings. Come, let's down. He's the only one who takes him in. Um, and he does it with a sense that the, in, the universe is indifferent, that only a universe lacking a god could allow something like this. What's this? Here's Velvet's shark skin intently gazing at Ahab's hand and feeling, ah, now, poor heart Pip, but felt so kind a thing as this, perhaps he'd never been lost. If he'd known something like this, he might not have jumped. This seems to me, sir, as man ropes, something that, that weak souls may hold by, oh, sir, let old Perth now come and rivet these two hands together, the black one with the white, for I will not let this go. O boy, nor will I thee, unless I should thereby drag thee to worse horrors than are here. And worse horrors are here. Come then to my cabin, lo, ye, be ye believers in God's all goodness, and in man all ill. Lo, you see the omniscient God's oblivious of suffering man. And remember that line, there can be no hearts above the snow line. O ye frozen heavens, look down here. Um, go over quickly to page 609. This is that scene in the cabin where Ahab has got to go up deck and he tells Pip, remember to stay down below, page 609. He says, stay here. Um, and he's in some ways regretting that Pip is there because every time he's with Pip, he feels his heart softening. And is being moved away from his quest. No, 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 you've not a whole body, sir. Do not, but do ye but use poor me for your one lost leg. Only tread upon me. I ask no more, so I remain a part of you. The identity is complete. He's a part of him. And he's saying, use me as your leg. He's willing to serve him completely. Ahab, oh, spider. How many men would do this on board? I mean, I guess the way to put it, how many men on board the Pequod would do this? Because all the men have scorn and contempt for each other. They're rivals. They're competitive. This is a business enterprise. Pips it was pushed outside of that world. He's an image of this, I think, this innate goodness that has no place in this world of work. Oh, spite of million villains, this makes me a bigot in the fadeless fidelity of man and black and crazy. Both reasons not to have anything to do with him. But methinks like cures like applies to him too. He grows so sane again. It's as if the two of them being together bring some goodness out of each other. They tell me, sir, that Stubb did once desert poor little Pip, whose drowned bones now show white for all the blackness of his living skin. But I will never desert ye, sir, as Stubb did him. Sir, I must go with ye. He will not leave him. Ahab says, weep so, and I will murder thee. Have a care, for Ahab too is mad. Listen. He says, um, you stay here. Now, the interesting thing that we're left with with Pip is that Pip's, Ahab goes above deck. Pip sits down in Ahab's seat and takes his place. Now, what are we to make of that? Because in one sense, he's Ahab there. Well, or let's call him one aspect of Ahab, while the other aspect goes to kill Moby Dick. Here are sail sailors say in their black 74's great admirals sometimes sit at table and lord over the rows of captains and lieutenants. Ha ha, what's this? Epaulets. 
Epaulets, the epaulets all come crowding, pass round the decanters, glad to see, fill up, monsieurs. What an odd feeling now when a black boy's host to white men, he's playing the role of an admiral for a minute. Monsieurs, have you seen one pip? A little negro lad, five foot high, hangdog look, and cowardly jumped from a whaleboat once. Seen him? No. Well, then fill up again, captains, and let's drink shame upon all cowards. I name no names. Shame upon them. But one foot upon the table. Shame upon all cowards. Hissed above there. I hear ivory. Oh, ma- you can hear Ahab walking on his foot, his leg. Oh, master, master, I am indeed downhearted when you walk over me. But here I'll stay, though this stern strikes rocks, and they budge through, and oysters come to join me. He will not abandon Ahab. So put all of this together just for a second. We've got Pip as a double. We've got Ahab going to his death. He's had these tender scenes. And then remember there's the, the, the scene of the, uh, this, um, this uh, where's the, the, when he speaks with um, um, Starbuck, when he has that tear. Uh oh. Where is it? Um, the symphony on page um, 619. Um, and Ahab dropped a tear into the sea, nor did all the Pacific contain such wealth as that one we dropped. And there's this description of the beauty of the day again. He says, On such a day, very much such a sweetness as this, he says, He's set out for sea and he's not spent three years ashore leaving his wife a widow and his child in a sense childless um, middle of 620 Starbuck I feel deadly faint bowed and humped as though I were Adam staggering beneath the pied century since paradise God God cracked my heart stayed my brain close stand close to me Starbuck and he says to him don't don't board. You stay on board. Star, or Starbuck says, oh, my captain, my captain, noble soul, grand old heart, stay here. Um, he tries to make one more appeal on 621, and Ahab says, what is this nameless, inscrutable, unearthly thing it is? What causing hid lord and master and cruel, remorseless emperor commands me? Go down. Is Ahab Ahab? Is it I, God, or who that lifts this arm. But if the great sun move not of himself, but is an errand boy in heaven, nor one single star can revolve, but by some invisible power, how then can this one small heart beat, this one small brain think thoughts, unless God does that beating? He knows that there's no fit, nothing physical can move itself. I hope that's obvious to everybody. The source of motion can't come from matter because matter can't move itself. Ahab's enough of a metaphysician to know there has to be something immaterial behind the universe. And it leads him to this question, am I moving this arm or is God? Do I have a free will or not? By heaven's man we are turned round and round in this world like yonder windless, and fate is the handspike, and all the time, lo, that smiling sky and that unsounded sea, look, see yon albacore, who put it into him to chase and fang that flying fish, where do murderers go, man? Who's to do when the judge himself is dragged to the bar? 
but it is a mild, mild wind and a mild-looking sky, and you know that they will set off, and then they have the... I want to just read one more passage, and then I want to stop and take up these questions. On page 637. Sorry about all this reading, but I want to... I really want to try to... Um, this is the end of the second chase, um, with the boat splintered again. Um, um, Starbuck is crying again, telling him that it's blasphemous to continue in his chase. 638. Starbuck of late I felt strangely moved to thee ever since that hour we both saw. Thou knowest what in one another's eyes, but in this matter of the whale, be the front of thy face to me as the palm of his hand, a litless, unf unfeatured blank. Ahab is forever Ahab man. The whole acts immutably decreed. Twas rehearsed by thee and me a billion years before the ocean rolled. Fool, I am the fate's lieutenant. I act under orders. Look thou, underling, that thou obeyest mine. And then he goes out. Um, and you know what happens in the third day. On the third day, he sees um, um, Fadala and realizes the ship is the second hearse, and he realizes he was wrong in all the prophecies, and he's going to his death, and um, and then he dies. And remember, at, when he was in pursuit of um, um, Moby Dick, three men are knocked overboard. Two of them manage to get back in. We learn later that the third one was Ishmael, and he manages to be outside that vortex when it takes the ship down. And when Queequeg's coffin boy pops up, he takes it and he survives it. So he comes back to tell the story. Okay, what do we do? I'd like to hear from you guys. Um, how do we look? Let's see. Um, I don't think we can answer this first question about Ishmael, about what he's come back to tell us, or who... I want to put both those questions, why Ishmael and what does he come back to tell us, but it seems that we've got to answer the other one first, um, because we won't be able to answer that without knowing Ahab. So, how do we look at Ahab? He was... I asked you this question because it stunned me when it hit me. If, you, if you're raised in a Calvinistic culture, a Christian culture, and you're, really, you're, you're raised to believe that some people are damned and some people are saved, um, how would you know? And, and let's take it even farther for a moment. Let's, let's take it beyond personal things with one person or another. If you were a human being, would you read, I'm asking this question rhetorically because I'm trying to relate it to the book, would you read in your, reach a point in your life where you asked yourself, what does it feel like to be among the damned? when you had no choice. How could you be a human being and live in the world and have moments of joy, even if they're only momentary, and still live with the notion, there's nothing you can do about it. You're damned. If you grew up in that kind of a culture, and you were human, as we understand it, that God made us with this inherent dignity, this nobility that we lost in the fall, but still is with us. If you intuitively felt that dignity, in you as a human, what would you do? Because so much of what Ahab does, he does in defiance. He's striking back. He wants to get to the root of things. So there's a twofold question here. In some ways, he seems to be really noble. Are there some things that he's doing that are actually damnable? I mean, to me, it's a. 
And an even, this is an even harder question for me. Melville's writing out of, a, out of a Protestant culture. And it seems to me it's one he seems to be leaving. I mean, I can't see him at home. Ishmael's not at home, he's an outcast one. He's gonna live forever outcast. And I've suggested, I mean, I, I, that there are passages in here that leave me wondering if he wasn't attracted by Catholicism, but you know that most Protestant looks at Catholicism as the Antichrist. I, it's hard for me to see him going there. By the way, Hawthorne and Melville were deep friends. Hawthorne's writing the same critique in Scarlet Letter. He's critiquing the Puritan gen If you've read Scarlet Letter, you know that all these people are very self-righteous about Hester's adultery. And they don't even know it, but the minister that they all love is the father of that child. I mean, they're both dealing with the same hypocrisies. And Hawthorne's daughter converted and became a nun. It seems to me that Hawthorne was on his way to the Catholic Church his whole life and could never make it. Is there something of that in Ahab? I mean, in Melville. Leave that alone for a minute, just for a minute. Is there something he's writing out of that culture that he can't fully grasp? And I can only put it that this way. Let's say, hypothetically, just for a moment, in Ahab's, or in Melville's mind, Ahab's damned. Let me just, I don't, I want to put the question back to you, but let's just say, from our perspective, as Catholics believing in a merciful God, would God look at this creature the way we've seen him growing up in what he's had to face as a young man growing up and coming to the sin? Would God damn him? Or does Ahab damn himself? How do we look at Ahab in this book from Melbourne's perspective from outside? So let me put it back to you. How do we look at Ahab? Is he damned? Is he not? How are we to read this end? Karen, what do you say? <laughs> I'm not getting back, honestly, I'm not. No, I'm not. Oh. I'm not, because you've got to... Just wondering. What do you think? Don't look at the book, honestly, I'm just wondering. From your heart and your mind, what do you think? I think Ahab believes he is damned. That Ahab believes he is? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you give a reason why? That's what I was looking Look for. Look at the book, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he has all these opportunities to, to repent, if you will. Or to turn back. That's all I can Does he even yeah. see them that way? If, if he believes that, that gloom is more ultimate than joy, and that, you know, that sadness is grief is more ultimate than joy, that even the, he said in that line that even the gods are joyless, you know, if he believes that, it's not like a Catholic, I mean, that's why I said earlier, you know, we, I, we, I don't know of another work of literature who does that. In every work of literature, if, if Mac, Mac, Othello's and Macbeth are recently converts, when they do an evil thing, they do it knowing they're sinning. And they may have to repent or, you know, do whatever, but they know it. Is Ahab doing anything in his mind that he understands to be a sin? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he how do we, I mean, what do we do with this? He thinks he's doing the right thing. Huh? He thinks he's doing the right thing. I think he's, he thinks he's doing the only thing he can do. That's right. right. Yeah. He has no choice. Yeah. He, he sees uh, Moby Dick as evil, so he wants to get rid of it. A good Christian fights evil. Hmm? He, a good Christian fights evil. Evil, yes. He's fighting evil. He's not damned. 
But if there's evil everywhere, that would make you crazy fighting everything, right? So? <laughs> the more I look at this work, the I mean, truly, and you guys have helped me a lot because of the conclusion I came to, the more I look at this, the more I see it as a tortured effect of the Protestant world, what it introduced to Christianity and how, how confused it's made it. In one sense, in the literary tradition, Ahab is a tragic hero, and you can make, you can make the argument that's plausible in some ways that he's damned. He's blasphemous. Um, he's taking the place of God at times. He's trying to, do, he's trying to take away suffering. He wants to answer it. And we know Christ. But there's nothing in his background that makes that real for him if he's grown up believing what he does. So um, I'm just stunned when I think about the predicament that he's in. Fred, yeah. I think, I think he struggled with this damnation throughout the entire book. You know, I, if, you grow up, if you grow up in a society like that, you're probably constantly trying to figure out whether you're in the saved group or the damned group. And I think maybe he was still having that struggle until he lost his leg. And he viewed that as the conclusion that, you know, he was damned. Maybe others around him told him, well, you're obviously damned because of a whale ate your leg. But I think there was still a part of him inside that just couldn't come to grips with that. That in, in, in the conversation, you know, in, the, in what he saw in Pip and taking him in. And particularly for me, it came out in, in, the, in the symphony, in his, in his conversations with Starbuck. And, and in, his, in his own musings, uh, when he was when he was alone, and you know when the tear falls into the ocean, it seems to me like he's constantly struggling with how can God, how can nature damn somebody from the very beginning? Can it really be true? But he could never get over the hump. Although he has he got, it seems yeah. like he got close several times. Yeah. But he just kept falling back to, you know, it's hopeless. You know, I'm damned. Yeah, there's that line that I read when he when he said that even truth is more powerful, that truth is more ultimate. That, and hold on, I just want to, I want to throw this in this conversation. Remember at the end that he has an experience similar to the experiences that all great tragic heroes experience, and that is a recognition. He goes into the chase scenes convinced by an evil man, and we can't forget that Fadala really is evil. And remember the. The triwork scene where at nighttime when the fires were going up and Ishmael saw the demonic glow that there is something damnable going on in, in this enterprise. He believes so that in some ways like a Gnostic, and I, I, there, the, I, this is, God I wish I were younger because I'd love to do a work on this. It, to me it's so important. There's something Manichaean in Calvin that's Eastern. You know what Manichaeanism is. It's the duality of good and evil are co-eternal with each other and, and matters evil. And um, There's something Manichaean in the Protestant soul. It's just there, particularly it's strong in Calvin. Um, wait, where is it going? Ahab believes in some way that he hasn't worked out, given this philosophy that he has, that he's safe so long as he knows He's convinced from what Fadala says that he's safe, that he, he will not die, um, what he, he will only die by hemp, he will not die, what does he say, with the, 
has to see two hearses. He has to see two hearses, but the other one about Fadala coming back or returning. What was the? Yeah, he'll see Fadala again. Fadala will die before him, and he will come back. And there'll be and Ahab's convinced. Now think about that's Gnostic, because the Gnostic who's different from an incarnational Christian in believing knowledge, enlightenment is the end of things. So the will is out of it, totally out of it. It's a Gnostic ending because he's, he's convinced that he knows what will happen. And what happens at the end is that his, his certain knowledge begins to crumble. First, Fadala disappears. He'll have to riddle that out, remember? And then he sees Fadala, or and then he recognizes the first Hurst, which was... The, the whale. Fadala tied to the whale. Right. And, and then, and then, and then he, uh, when Moby Dick is heading towards the ship, in the third day, he says, there's the third. And then there's this dawning. So before he dies, he has a recognition. He sees. So the que and we don't get any time. I mean, he's, on, you know, he's dead and off the whale, so we don't know. But here's the question to ask, or one of the questions. He has a recognition before he dies. So like Othello, all, all heroes um, do, and all the tragic heroes, the really great ones, what does that do for him? He sees that he was wrong. Because all, up until that time, he's convinced that what he's doing is to answer this evil, to not let these forces take away his dignity as a human being. He doesn't believe the way we do, because we believe you enter into a cross and share it. I mean, that's a fundamental difference. And it's sacramental. We, we believe that we get help through the sacraments. Otherwise, that would become unbearable to not go through it with Christ, who did it. So there's a joy for us behind all the misery. There isn't for Ahab. He has a moment at the end where he recognizes, does that do anything for him as a person? How do we see him at the end? Carol, anybody? I think the fact that he turns away from the sun says he never, he never makes it. Never makes yeah, the, the, the salvation. The, the leap. The leap, yeah. The, the, because I, you know. But how, what would he have to leap to if he doesn't believe in it? <laughs> he probably probably sorry at the end. If he's been if he's been raised to, I mean, that's what's so painful about this book to me. If if you're a Catholic or something's reached you, you you have a reason for believing otherwise. If he's never believed that, what's he to turn to? Joy doesn't exist for him. A belief in a merciful God who took that on himself sacramentally. Catholics are in another world. Absolutely different world. So you don't think you'd turn to the sun in your final moment? But I'd, I'd have a reason for doing it. <laughs> My beliefs are very different from his. Well, no, but I'm just saying if he had that sudden realization... But he has a realization that he was wrong. He, there's no, the Catholic Church is the, that, you know, that's not, that's not going on here. That, that's a naturalistic, he sees, I was wrong. So like everything that he built his whole life on is just destroyed. We don't know what, you know, what, what, what goes on in a soul at that moment. He's dying. Let me ask, let me, because we've got to go. Three minutes quick. What does, a, what does Ishmael bring back? You know that most readers read this as a, a book about Ahab, so they see it as a tragedy. You know that my reading is not that at all. That the Ahab plot 
is contained in Ishmael, he's bringing it to us. But the Ishmael plot, I think, is purgatorial. It's purgatorial comedy. There's hope. He survives it. He comes back. What does he come back to show us? What are we to learn from this story that he brings to us? That if we, if we take the Jonah story as our stepping off point, is prophetic. There's something absolutely crucial in Melville's mind that we have to learn from this if we're going to change our ways. He must be forgiving. He couldn't forgive the whale. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah. The, you learn. You've got to forgive. You can't hold a grudge. Do you remember those opening lines of Ishmael and Loomings where he talked about that universal thump? You know, at the very beginnings. I mean, he said all of us, you know, have to suffer that. Um, it's not quite forgiveness, but it's all. I have the satisfaction of knowing that it, this is 33. You don't go there. I have the satisfaction of knowing that it's all right that everybody else, one way or another, serves as much the same way. We're all going to suffer, either in a physical or a metaphysical point of view. That is, so the universal thump is passed around, and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. It's not quite forgiveness. And it certainly doesn't reach the depths of pain that Ahab does. But I wonder if what Ishmael brings back isn't this openness to being and a trust in things and a willingness to suffer with each other that is a move back in the direction of the sacraments. It's not there. Or, or let me ask it differently. Is Christ present in this book? Do you find Christ anywhere? Well, I think Moby Dick was God. Or an image of something in him. Yes, symbolic. Yeah. Don't, God. don't forget the start or the uh, Steel Kilt story. Remember where he spared Steel Kilt? Um, that, that even if he's not God, God can still use nature to intervene in a world in which God is present. And, and it's a question for me whether he isn't a Ishmael. Hold on one second. Um, what, what's going on with the hammering? like a reference to the crucifixion, I would say. You, you remember the little girl in, in uh, Supernatural Love getting pricked? Mm -hmm. I can't hear this hammering without feeling that that was Melville's way of, you know what a palimpsest is? A palimpsest is a text that you impose over another text so you can read the earlier text through it. This, this story is like a palimpsest, that ending is like a palimpsest over the crucifixion scene. That, that in the largest way, a crucifixion is going on. Howard understand Melville's view, but I don't. But I really believe that this was his way of acknowledging that there was a crucifixion, and that there is this survivor. To, but that, that that whole crew was lost. Starbuck was a believing Christian. Remember, he says when he at the end, he says, "God, God, stand by me now," because he knows he's going to his death. Um, there were um, eight gams, but then that ship came back again, so actually nine. And nine is a, a number in the Bible that means final. God died at the ninth hour. Jesus died at the ninth mm. hour. And there's all the multiplications of threes at the end that are interesting, but I don't know what to, I mean, that, those are, we can get carried away with those, but I'm certainly taken by the hammering because everybody's, but Christ anywhere? Does anybody? I think Queequeg was a little bit like Christ in that he 
was willing to sacrifice himself, he jumped right in to save the boy who fell in mm -hmm. the water. And, you know. Pip has that in him too, right. a lot. And if he's that dissociated self, that part which people lose contact in their lives, that you know, as they become so embroiled in things that, and I, I think I don't, I don't remember if I said to you guys, but you know, how many times we're in the, when the, we're in the throes of sin, when we're committing a sin and we know it, how often are we able to go to that image of you know, this intrinsic good that's in us? To, it tends to get dissociated out because sin pushes it away. Um, we become, it's like we become dissociated selves. We get broken. And Last thoughts, anybody, before we... I was surprised the ship went down so quickly. Why? What does that mean? Well, just because the lead, lead up to it was so prolonged. Yeah. And all of a sudden, poof, we're done. <laughs> In one sense, it almost reinforces the sense of how powerful a whale can be when it smashes, because um, Ishmael covered that earlier on when he talked about how the forehead and the power and how indomitable it was and the ships went down. If, if a whale hits you with that force, uh, you'll take in water right away. Or what about the last image of Tashtigo nailing that flag to the mast? I mean, there's so much to talk about here. You want to take another four weeks? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's stop. Let's stop. I'm um, I'm glad you all read this, and I hope I hope it's been a, a good gift to you all because it's it seems to me it's very deeply American. It has to do with who we are, um, and a and a very particular kind of religious struggle in our age that is. In, if, if I'm right, that Melville is exercising demons here, Protestant demons, then what he's describing is, um, what, ubiquitous. I mean, it's around us everywhere, and it's real. I mean, people are living this out in some ways, whether they know it or not. Um, okay, go down Moses next, next week. You guys continue to have a good Lent. I hope... Um, I hope it's a good Lent for everybody. Okay. Keep Suzanne and me in your prayers, if you would, please. We're keeping all of you guys in ours.